It's important responsibility. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Um, so, uh, for the um, introduction, we've got a guest introducer, Bradford Briggs, taking the place of uh, our own Richard Waddell, who's off down dancing somewhere. So, um, Bradford's going to. Um, uh, provide the uh, necessary introduction, followed by Tim, who's going to provide the nursing CME introduction, and then if we have time left, we'll actually do the seminar. I'll try to be quick. Hi, everybody. Um, so Richard just gave me some stuff I have to read verbatim, so apologies for staring at a piece of paper as I read it. Um, the other, there's an instruction sheet on the desk how to access your online transcripts, and it'll be posted within a month. Um, you must attend 80% of this program to receive credit. Um, the planning committee member and faculty, Dr. Brian Marsh, is consultant for Gilead Biosciences. Paul Palumbo, Dr. Paul Palumbo, is a DSMB member of Gilead and for Gilead. The planning committee members and speakers' roles were validated by independent peer review by the appointed Geisel faculty, planning committee member, and determined to be free of any commercial bias. All potential conflicts were resolved. All other planning committee members and speakers have not identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Wildly exciting. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of my duty. Thank you very much. Right. So, Tim's going to do the nursing CME, and then I'll take a second, and then I'll take a question. Actually, that's the care of the nursing CME. Just uh, remember that you need to. Sign in and make sure we have your uh, information. Uh, the PEP form is filled out. If you haven't already filled one out, you'll get your address there. All right, and so the sequence, um, four of us um, went to Columbus here. Tim's going to lead off, uh, followed by Paul Palumbo, followed by Mary Margaret Andrews, followed by me. And so we'll try to keep it to 15 minutes or so per person. And um, depending on how things work, I guess it would probably make sense to do some questions along the way. So I'm going to do some selected topics in the basic science of HIV. And um, just I'm cherry picking. There's lot, there was lots of stuff there. Um, you know, huge lecture halls full of posters and lots of exciting uh, plenaries and uh, oral presentations. But I picked out the ones I thought were most most interesting. So the first topic that uh, I'll lump some data together in has to do with viral persistence. You know, we've known for a long time that um, HIV is incurable with standard therapies, that if you stop therapy, viremia returns. Um, and Fauci's group is, has done some nice mathematical modeling looking at how long would it take for uh, the last infected cell to die in the body so that uh, cure, uh, suppressive therapy could actually eradicate in its only 60 years, and so clearly we need more tools than that. And then in the last few years, we've had some exciting um, hints about not only viral persistence, but in a cure. And, you know, some of it was good. Timothy Ray Brown, the Berlin patient, was cured of HIV by a bone marrow transplant. But then we have these informative but ultimately disappointing cases of return of the virus after some initial promise. So the Mississippi baby looked as if viral infection had not been established, but then more recently it was uh, rediscovered after being lost to follow-up with return of viremia. And so, shoot, we thought that 
the virus was eradicated, but it, here it was coming back. There were some other patients, most, uh, uh, most advertised were those at the Brigham who had standard bone marrow transplants on antiretroviral therapy and were not cured, just showing how hard it is to root out the virus. And that's given rise to some questions like these, like, you know, if we know that HIV is hiding in some cell, is it sort of randomly hiding in cells, or are there particular cell types that we should be trying to search out and, and, and destroy to root out HIV? It is, is there just sort of like one or two remaining viruses and all the rest of the viruses in the body are dead? Or is it that all over the body there are lots and lots of different separate unique viruses that are uh, still alive? And if you know which cells HIV was hiding in, what characteristics do they have? Are they just sitting there doing nothing or are they proliferating, um, making mischief as they go? And this year we got some early answers to those questions. So one had to do with uh, what sort of virus is hiding. Um, the top phylogenetic tree is a, uh, lots of different viruses with a little unfilled in circles is representing lots of different viruses identified in a patient who had chronic HIV infection and was not yet on polysuppressive therapy. And by the fact that each of these viruses is alone on a separate branch of the tree means that they're genetically different from each other. That's a, a diverse array of viruses. But then the same patient later on in the disease course, 10 or 11 years later, uh, had on therapy assessment of the genetic makeup of those viruses that could be discovered through technical means in cells. And you can see that things changed. That here, for instance, there are a whole bunch of uh, identical viruses all found uh, one after another when various viral isis were found. And that this sort of relatedness was seen here and here. But that also there was some diversity, suggesting that early on, if the virus can do whatever it wants, it'll differentiate into lots of different viral clones into different cells. But that under the pressure of therapy, many of that, many members of that diverse viral family tree die off, and you start to have single clones of virus that persist in the body. And then the best hypothesis for how this would happen would be that you might have one single cell that's infected with one single virus, which isn't doing anything. It's not replicating, because if it replicates, it's going to mutate itself. But what is replicating is the cell. The cell itself is making copies of itself, as immune cells do, and in so doing, copying the virus. But our enzymes, our human enzymes, don't make mistakes as often as HIV's enzyme does, and so it's copying it faithfully. So you get the same virus over and over, copied over and over again. This is suggest this is interesting in that it's clearly the virus persisting, but it's also suggesting that uh, the virus is to a degree being kept under control and it's not able to mutate itself as well. But that's not a perfect truth in that there is still some diversity in the viral family tree, even on suppressive therapy. So the take home is that, yeah, mostly you get clonally expanded cells that are causing viruses to stick around, and the virus is mostly controlled, but not 100%. And this is the sort of the pattern of family trees we kept seeing in one after another patient sample. Uh, 
no hard test rules. And these, these clonally replicating cells that themselves house virus appear to be the source of blips that we see in clinical practice when the viral load goes up to 100 and then goes back down to undetectable. We've known for a while that that's not very clinically significant, that people don't have an adverse prognosis, for instance, if they have a blip. And that probably explains why, that most of the time that just represents that, yes, they have virus in their immune cells, and those immune cells replicate from time to time. And sometimes those immune cells just go and just spit a little virus out into the bloodstream, and then it's over. And that does, it's not meaningful like that. It's just, yeah, we knew you weren't here. Interestingly, when you look at, you know, if you know that then that virus is hiding in some immune cell that's proliferating, it makes you wonder, is that just randomly proliferating, because that's what immune cells do? Or might that immune cell be specially capable of proliferating and harboring a virus? And the answer to that is not entirely clear, but what is interesting is that when they do genetic analyses of where in the genome of those cells the virus is integrated, and sort of what genes are expressed in those cells that are replicating, they appear to be, in some cases, uh, uh, genes that are associated with control of viral replication. And in some of those cases, those are even, as in this one case report by Simonetti, uh, a gene associated with a tumor, such as this patient's famous cell carcinoma. So we're still figuring out what makes those cells that HIV gets into special, but there's some hint at least that sometimes it's getting into tumor-related or replication-related genes. And maybe that gives rise to new targets. And I would guess that's probably the tip of the iceberg, and there's a lot more to learn. You know. And one interesting line of inquiry that's not new, but is still being pursued, is the idea that if you know HIV could be in those cells hiding, and that's an obstacle to cure because they're not going away despite effective therapy, could you essentially wake up the virus in those quiescent cells or partially quiescent cells and let it show itself more to the immune system and to the effects of therapy and thereby sort of shrink the reservoir of cells in which HIV is hiding and then maybe make it so it's not 60 years to cure of a 10 or something like that. And we know now, uh, uh, posters presented by these authors at the uh, uh, conference, that there are ways of awaking the virus. We had looked at valproic acid as one way of doing that before. That works, but not great. More potently, the um, parabinostat, which... Uh, uh, and, and the TLR7 agonist, and I don't think it had a, a chemical name yet, um, had showed that it could uh, awake those cells. You could get return of viremia, mimics a blip, and then it would go back down once, once that stopped. What that didn't, what we haven't seen data on yet is whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You can imagine maybe just getting more virus in your body just means more cells get infected and it's not good. But it might mean maybe you could treat more effectively. And that hasn't been um, explored fully uh, yet. But it links to something else that I wanted to talk about, which is if you could wake up the virus, how could you hit it harder than our existing drugs do? And that gets to a really uh, hot topic right now, which is antibodies. As you guys know, We've disregarded the role of antibodies in immune, immune protection from HIV for a long time, knowing that it was outpaced by viral mutations. Uh, but um, with the RV144 trial and the success of that antibody-making vaccine and the 
the finding that that protection was probably conferred by antibodies, people have rekindled their interest in antibodies. And there were some interesting results I thought I'd show you. And it kind of gets at the idea of, could you learn how to make good antibodies that might help smack that virus down when you look it up? So uh, Margie Ackerman of Dartmouth gave a really interesting uh, presentation about sort of a systems biology approach to uh, analyzing antibody role and immune protection from HIV naturally or from vaccines. And essentially the point she made was that antibodies do lots of things. And we kind of think of antibodies as softening up virus in the blood, but that might not be all they do. That they also cause antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity and phagocytosis and all of these effector functions that are depicted here. And which one of those that the antibodies are doing is really not known. And so they are proposing more of an agnostic approach where you say, well, if you know that antibodies could be of different types and they could do all these different things, wouldn't it make sense to do sort of a heat map of all those things and relate them to clinical outcomes or vaccine protection? <coughs> See what really the holy ground looks like. And that's stereotypically been disregarded as a fishing expedition kind of research. But I think people are realizing, well, well, we're on a fishing expedition, so that would make sense. <laughs> so she gave a nice talk about that. Georgia Tamaris of Duke uh, did some interesting analyses of antibody responses in the people who got the RV144 <coughs> vaccine, protective vaccine, um, and then got boosted again uh, six to seven years later on average in this new um, uh, study. And interestingly, they did boost their antibodies after getting the same vaccine again, but they didn't boost the IgG type of antibodies that was most specifically associated with protection. So you can boost those vaccine responses, but not necessarily the ones you want. And they didn't see changes in antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity or broadly neutralizing antibodies. So um, we don't know for sure what the magic juju is that you want to elicit, but it looks like as our best guesses for what's good are not what we can remake uh, by boosting. So we're still figuring out how to make that vaccine better in the short run. And then Dan Baruch, um, with whom uh, Emmanuel uh, did his postdoc after, uh, after leaving here, uh, did some really interesting studies looking at the role of uh, adding antibodies to ART. And I can close with that. So basically what they did was they took rhesus macaques and they um, treated them with antiretroviral therapy, plus or minus uh, the most potent, broadly neutralizing antibody um, that's been found today, or well, uh, at the time of these studies, PGT-121. And then they just sort of saw what happened. And so they saw viral load suppressed on the heart. Uh, but in the subjects who typically would have uh, a return of, of a virus after cessation of heart here. They noticed that there were some subjects here in green and blue that seemed to have lower viral load, and they stayed undetectable after getting the antibody plus heart for longer than these people who just got heart did. And so did maybe those antibodies smack down the virus a little more persistently than antiretroviral therapy did. Those are statistically significant differences, although you can see that um, in these antibody-treated uh, monkeys, there's a couple of the five that still had detectable viral loads of lower but similar viral loads as to the non-antibody-treated. But over time, everybody started to look the same. So it's, it's probably a greater effect than ART alone, but it's not a holy grail, kind of a holy crap, you know, we have the, the cure. So the antibodies can knock down replicating virus, but as we knew, they don't cure it.
Um, and I think what I'll do is I'll skip this because it's it's a more um, it's more of a recognized topic, and I want to give the others time to to talk. But suffice to say, there were lots of talks about innate immunity and following up on William Green's pyroptosis work and uh, immune sensing, and, and people are realizing that's also playing a role in HIV immunity. Happy to talk about it after. All right. Next victim. Any questions for Tim while we switch over? <laughs> so, Tim, what, what was the what was the sense do you think amongst the virologists and immunologists as to sort of the meaning of the meaning this time? Like frustration, we still don't really have a clue where that could go versus a really reaching progress with something exciting. I think, uh, you know, I think where we are is, you know, like two, three years ago, we got a lot of interesting news. You know, we had the RV144 success, we've had the Werner Green finding, and I think now we're in this sort of avid chasing of the leads that that has opened up. So I didn't think that there was anything that was really paradigm shifting at this conference uh, in the basic science arena, but lots of interesting leads that are not all the way full of uh, chased it down, and so I'm guessing next year and the year after is when the really exciting stuff happens. So I think people are more just hungry to, to track down that beast and kill it. All right, thanks. Okay. Well, right, I noticed that you turned the clock back here instead of forward. We'll try and stay on time. I have uh, two presentations, uh, two uh, uh, presentations that I'm going to review with you. And for this year, uh, they spent a small amount, but a, a remarkable amount of time on Ebola. Um, you've heard a bit about Ebola through some of our colleagues here, and I'm going to just spend a minute. I, I have renewed respect for this MSF group. They have dealt with Ebola epidemics in the past, which have been very small. They were the first uh, out in the field this time. Uh, they made remarkable progress, but were clearly overwhelmed as far as resources and personnel very early uh, in 2014. Put out pleas to WHO, CDC, everybody else. Uh, unsuccessfully, it really wasn't until the fall that other people joined this effort, um, uh, including organizations that uh, Elizabeth and others have worked with. Uh, but MSF seems to be on the front lines generally. This is a report from them by this, uh, this gentleman here, uh, a very remarkable report. But these are uh, cities or towns that MSF was involved with and it continues to be involved with. You see the number of cases that we reported through February of this year that just MSF has led to uh, the case fatality rates being similar to what's being reported by WHO and CDC. Well, about 50%. The only standing ovation at Koi was for this, for this guy. Yeah. Um, interestingly, at all these treatment centers, at most of these treatment centers, they have PCR-based viral load detection assays. Very remarkable. Um, and, and MSF uh, reported some of their results. So these are case fatality rates. These uh, reflect the amount of virus in the specimen. So at low PCR cycles, there's very high levels of virus in the order of 10 to the 8th uh, virions per ml. At high numbers of cycles of PCR, if high numbers of cycles are required to detect the virus, it means there's fairly low amount of virus present uh, in, in the clinical sample. And the amount of virus, as with HIV, for instance, uh, correlates very well 
with the case fatality rate. So this is a very important diagnostic test, which is generally available now in West Africa at these treatment centers, which can help triage, uh, and which are going to be very important as clinical trials are rolled out. Uh, in fact, I'll share with you one clinical trial that was, uh, that was reported. There's a lot of activity in therapeutics and vaccines. This slide taken from science just deals with some of the therapeutics out there. From very simple approaches like using convalescent serum for people who've recovered from uh, Ebola uh, to some, some drugs and monoclonal antibodies that um, uh, have been developed. There was a trial that was reported at uh, Croy uh, of this particular antiviral. Um, you've heard of ZMAP, uh, which is out in the field. This brincidofavir is uh, a very promising uh, drug, uh, but Chimeris pulled the planned trial from West Africa for a variety of reasons. Uh, trials are going to be very difficult to do. There's been a lot of debate about whether uh, one can do a placebo-controlled trial in a disease where there's 50% mortality. Uh, this particular drug has good activity in Ebola-infected mice models with essentially 100% survival tolerance, and it's currently an approved drug for influenza. So it went out of the field uh, in a clinical trial in the MSF uh, uh, sites, or a couple of sites. This is the JICU trial. Uh, this, in the local dialect, stands for HOPE. Um, and this is a, it's not a placebo-controlled trial. They compared trial data with what was going on at their sites three months pre-trial. And it kind of shows you some of the challenges we have with doing such a, such a trial. So these are the first 69 participants. This is an ongoing trial, but they recorded the data from the first 69. These were individuals who were 14 years of age into adulthood. They also had 11 children under 6 years of age, data for which they did not report. And you can see the mortality rates here in the different uh, viral load categories here. So this is very high viral load high mortality, whether they're treated or not. In the lower viral load categories, we start to get a tickle of possible efficacy. Uh, but again, this is going to be very hard to tease out without a fully controlled trial. So that's where they uh, uh, had come to this drug. This drug is, uh, this is data that was reported uh, from the <coughs> trial through January 20th. And as I said, it's still ongoing. And they mentioned this trial is exploratory and will help pave the way to designing uh, more rigorous trials in the future. <coughs> These are uh, the other Ebola uh, presentations that were employed. Uh, and in particular, Bill's uh, Kutzum's uh, presentation was, was very moving and dramatic. These are all present. Uh, you can go onto the website and see webcasts of any of these if you'd like. So, um, PROMISE is an impact trial involved with impact, as you know. Uh, early results from PROMISE, from the pregnancy portion of PROMISE, were reported by Mary Glenn Fowler. Uh, this is uh, where the trial was conducted, India, Malawi, South Africa, uh, throughout, Af throughout uh, the rest of Africa. So it's a big multi-center trial. This is the portion of the trial that has an antipartum component, postpartum component, and maternal health component. And it's this first part of the trial where ZDB monotherapy uh, was compared to triple ARVs during pregnancy. So this is the part of the trial that was reported. 
You can see the copying from the website doesn't come out quite as clear as possible. I assume you've got Margie's uh, files uh, yourself. You can get them off the website. I did screenshots off the website, but it must be maybe it's a Mac PC. Uh, I've, got to, I've got to check that out with you. <laughs> anyway, pregnant women, 14 weeks of gestation and beyond. Uh, RMA is ACT uh, monotherapy with single dose nevirapine at delivery uh, and an FTC to not with your uh, tail. RMB is triple therapy with ACT 2PC plus Calitra. And RMC, which was kind of added on later, is Truvada plus Calitra. Um, there were 3,000 enrollees in the major portion of the study, and then this RMC portion, there were 1,229. So a fairly big trial. Here's the transmission, mother-to-child transmission data. This is data with a diagnostic test at 14 days. Uh, there were 25 infections in arm A, which is that sedopidine monotherapy arm, 1300 uh, N. Uh, and there was uh, nine infections in the triple therapy arm. So this was statistically significant. Uh, this is one of the reasons that uh, drove the DSMB to recommend staff enrollment of pregnant women into this trial. It made a transmission point. But equally interesting, uh, mothers who had grade 2 to 4 AEs uh, were more prevalent in the triple therapy arm, as you might imagine. Uh, and comparing A versus C and B versus C, again, uh, fairly similar. So adverse events more common in triple therapy, but not super severe. Uh, now these are outcomes of, of the pregnancy itself. Any adverse outcome of the pregnancy. This is low birth weight, under 2,500 grams. This is premature, under 36 weeks or 37 weeks, I believe. And in this side, these are the more severe outcomes. Instead of 2,500 grams, the cutoff was 1,500 grams, so very low birth weight. And instead of 37 weeks gestation, 34 weeks, so this is more premature. And what they're seeing here is significant differences when one compares arm A with B, with ZDB monotherapy being less problematic. So we're having more problems, but the problems are in the moderate category. When one looks at the severe outcomes, one sees a pretty clean slate. So as far as the infant safety, no significant differences in infant signs and symptoms uh, or labs. Uh, there were 60 early deaths uh, by 14 days, so early deaths, 60 deaths. Uh, significantly lower risk of death for the AZT3TC triple arm therapy versus the Truvada triple arm therapy. So something may be going on here with the Truvada over and above this particular triple there was 0.6% uh, uh, death in the ACT3TC arm versus 4.4% in the Truvada arm. And the deaths were primarily seen in the, in the uh, more pre immature or premature infants. So we don't know what's going on here, but it certainly raises a yellow flag, at least. So in conclusion, they said these results support the uh, current in the field WHO recommendations to use triple therapy during pregnancy, and that's great. Uh, the uh, triple ARBs were associated with higher risk of moderate but not severe outcomes, uh, including preterm birth and low birth weight. 
Uh, this does require follow-up, and this is consistent with what's been reported uh, with triple therapy in pregnancy prior. Uh, and then this issue of early infant death in the Truvada arm uh, is a curious one, and Truvada is recommended in pregnancy now by the WHO, so clearly we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to this going forward to see if it's a real phenomenon and to see if we need to consider changes in recommendation. I think that's it for me. Oh, should we um, incorporate that into practice? Okay. Well, we've kind of been dancing around this. Uh, Tim, I know you were talking. We were talking about uh, 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 the, the premature birth and low birth weight issue prior, which has been described with protease inhibitor use in pregnancy. Uh, now we're seeing possibly uh, an increased risk of that in the Truvada piece. Should this drive changes in recommendations? Um, it's going to be actively debated. There's more data that's going to come out of promise in the next months. Uh, so I'm not sure what to tell you. I think it's going to have to be debated. Right now, there's a lot of momentum with using efavirenz and Truvada in pregnancy, but you know, worldwide. Uh, is this enough to change that? Uh, I'm not sure. One of the uh, pushbacks I get from the Promise team is this is with the Lopinavir Reconavir base as opposed to what's being used out in the field, which is primarily in a fabric space. Uh, but I think it does create some consternation. I don't know what you folks think. I, I'm not sure we're ready to cross the board and change guidelines. What you're going to do in your clinic with individual patients is something you know, each of us will struggle with. I think I would be a little concerned about using Truvada for two reasons. One is the mortality. The second is the uh, uh, significant reports of uh, altered bone metabolism in newborns. We see uh, about a 10% decrease in uh, bone density in newborns or born mothers who receive Truvada. Now, there's a 1084 sub-study of PROMISE that is looking at just that, bone density uh, in babies at birth through the first year of life. That data is, has been collected. Uh, it cannot be released or analyzed until PROMISE is a little further along because it, it's going to break the, the code, the code. Uh, so we're very anxious to see that. But there's another NICHD study, FACTS, which has been done just in the United States, which has been reported and has shown a bone density issue uh, with newborns in Chicago. Are they more in the mortality? Yeah. Are they more? No, I, I can't disagree. It was totally unexpected and unexplained. to the fact that the, the name of the website actually changed this year for those of you who are used to looking at the retrovirusconference.org I mean they, they actually the, the actual website is croyconference.org this year CBS so just keeping you on your toes I had started out uh, wanting to or when we divided up our topics, I was also going to cover complications of HIV therapy. I think in the interest of time today, 
Uh, I will just touch on some of the epidemic and cascade issues so there's time for Brian to um, make some comments. And then for those of you who are here tomorrow also uh, at our aid seminar, we'll be spending uh, another at least half an hour, I guess, talking about these issues. Um, I was inspired by one special presentation um, that was given by Ambassador Burks at uh, the conference. Deborah Burks is a physician who now is in charge of PEPFAR. And she gave a, a inspiring presentation about controlling the epidemic and delivering on the promise of an AIDS-free generation. She talked uh, especially about how PEPFAR is focusing on women and how in Africa in 2013, 60% of the HIV infections are in women, and especially young women. And then she talked, uh, the diagram here is about uh, Eastern, it's hard to read the fine print, sorry, but it's Eastern and, and um, Southern Africa, and uh, in blue are the, uh, the infections in young women by country, and in the orange is the young men. You see that the, the ratio of male to female um, in uh, some of the countries is, is pretty dramatic. She uh, talked about how PEPFAR is moving towards really working at the site, looking at site-level programmatic data to better focus their resources. They obviously uh, have limited amount of resources, and they're trying to drill down within each country. And she talked specifically about uh, their roadmap in Kenya that they're using, and about maternal child transmission in Kenya, and how they were able to geo-map, if you will, the locations of the sites overlaid with where the deliveries were happening, and really recognize that even though each of the, the counties or districts had uh, maternal child uh, facilities, that it was really only in 28% of those sites that the vast majority of the deliveries uh, were happening, where the transmissions were happening. And just to be able to take the, have that amount of data and then focus going forward on the implementation of uh, new practices at that sites was really, I think, uh, a different way of approaching things within PEPFAR and within some of the global programs in general. Really trying to apply local data to the problem. She also talked about the DREAMS initiative for young women, which I don't think there's a lot of time to talk about today, but it's a, a collaboration between PEPFAR, the Gates Foundation, and the Nike Foundation really uh, focused on launching young women in Africa into more productive places in their adult life. So that's very exciting. If you're interested, happy to talk about it more. There's also a $200 million push to roll out antiretroviral therapy to children. And um, this is a graphic outlining the, the goal. And uh, this is clearly something that needs to be improved upon. And at present, uh, the vast majority of people in global settings still are not on antiretroviral therapy, as you know. <clears throat> Paul mentioned the PROMISE trial, and I think this was really a very important trial at the meeting. And uh, I'll just uh, come back to uh, some, a few of the other uh, perinatal uh, studies in the developed country setting in a minute. To shift to the United States, uh, to remind you about where we are with that cascade, we have a, about 1.2 million people living with HIV infection, still about 50,000 new diagnoses a year. 
Um, about 20% of those diagnoses in the United States, those new diagnoses are in women, at least two-thirds are in minorities, and rates in black men, for example, are still about eight times what they are in other populations. Uh, we still have a lot of people who are not fully, uh, who are not diagnosed, maybe 14% of people living with HIV, and of the people uh, who are in care, we only have approximately, across the board, 30% who are virally suppressed in the United States. Um, there are focuses, there is a lot of focus on the cities in the United States and states that have the most HIV infections. And uh, those that are listed here are the new, the, the states with the most new HIV diagnoses. Florida, California, Texas, New York, Georgia, New Jersey, Maryland, Illinois, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Uh, for those of you who follow this, you know that the, these, there's a little bit of difference here between the cities that have some of the older epidemics. And uh, so there's, a, um, there's another couple group of cities where there's a very high burden of disease, but the epidemic, uh, including San Francisco, for example, um, but the new epidemic has become better controlled. To remind you just briefly in terms of um, what's not going on in cities, but what's going on in the rural setting, this is the U.S. divided <coughs> into regions and the percent of diagnoses of HIV infection in 2011. And what we were just talking about was the, the orange data, the metropolitan service areas of, of greater than 500,000 people. And um, we fall into this blue category, the non-metropolitan areas, and uh, we are actually in a relatively uh, <coughs> low-burden rural area compared to the southeast, for example, and even some areas of the Midwest. And uh, I had some interesting conversations at the uh, meeting with some programs in the Midwest who are facing similar issues similar to ours with, with immigrants and refugees but are actually have a, uh, even a greater burden of disease than we do. There has not been a lot of uh, great news about our progress with HIV testing. I'll share with you one abstract from a meeting that was presented by <coughs> the CDC, where they analyzed national ambulatory medical care survey data um, and looked at when an HIV test was ordered. And they found that out of greater than 4.2 million uh, uh, HIV tests sent, that it only were being done at about 0.7% of the visits. So it's infrequent for someone to go to the doctor and have an actual HIV test performed as part of a visit. Um, it was done in 0.77% uh, of visits with women and 0.58% of visits with men. Um, it was more common at a preventive visit versus a symptom visit. It was more common for people with Medicaid versus privately insured patients, and more uh, common at a primary care visit rather than a subspecialty visit, and at a decreasing testing rates with age. And I don't think this surprises any of you, but it just points out that there's still a lot of missed opportunities, both when you're drawing blood for other reasons uh, or also just to uh, associate symptoms and illness, even symptoms of acute HIV infection or of cancers and other things that might represent chronic HIV infection as opportunities to consider HIV testing. 
There was a fascinating presentation by Tom Quinn on behalf of the Johns Hopkins uh, Emergency Department where they have miraculously been able to collect data about uh, emergency room-based HIV testing for um, many, many years at this point. And they did this, or have done this and continue to do this through, through serial intermittent identity unlinked zero surveys. So it's not a continuous survey, but done periodically over the years and then de-identified. And um, the peak zero prevalence they noticed in, noticed in the survey was between 1993 and 2003. Um, the, the overall zero prevalence peaked in, um, the peak zero prevalence was at 11%. Is currently down to about 5%. The peak zero prevalence in black males was 20%. It's now down to about 10%. In terms of people who were unaware of their status, it uh, peaked at about 20 28%, and it's now down to about 12%. And uh, beginning in 2005, they developed an aggressive linkage to care program. So if you were identified as positive in the emergency room, you were brought in through this linkage to care program. And in terms of their uh, measures for this, they had 47% of people brought into care through that program when it started in 2005, and that's now up to 88%. And in terms of viral suppression, within um, 90 days, I believe it is for this specific program, it may be, well, maybe six months, um, is now up to 59%. So it shows uh, both what you can do when you show initiative and basically take it onto yourself within this within this hospital within this community um, to make a difference from the point of, te of testing to linkage and retention and care. Mary Margaret, this is probably on the best case scenario spectrum of the curve at an institution that's paying a lot of attention. Yeah, and I think you'll you'll see. There's one other example. Um, I'll mention, and I think it's the next slide, so I'll, I'll just go on to that. Um, uh, there was a, a summary presentation about optimizing antiretroviral therapy and treatment and prevention in the U.S., and would this, would this be enough? And um, Dr. Elian summarized that treatment as prevention has probably reduced HIV incidence by about 50% in some communities, but that, that benefit uh, levels off within a few years and then plateaus. And so there's this other hard to reach group of population. Uh, the, the rates of success that people are having with this uh, is, and the total viral suppression is between 30 and 70% versus in clinical trial setting where maybe 90% of patients are completely suppressed on antiretrovirals. And uh, I think you saw how Hopkins, for example, went from one end of that spectrum towards the other uh, through an intensive outreach program. He talked specifically about some of the implementation issues in different communities and how different communities have approach this and it really is very different and the success levels are different and where the, the different jurisdictions have focused their energies is different. Um, I'm going to skip over Vancouver and just mention that in Washington, um, for example, they really spent most of their first uh, initial efforts on, um, on the testing and uh, reduction in, in new infections 
and really made an impact there, but their total viral suppression rate isn't what it needs to be yet. It's still like 44, 46%. Um, in San Francisco, they think they have 90% aware, 86 to 90% viral load suppression, but they have not been able to make any impact at all on their number of new infections in the city. So it, it, it really um, demonstrates how when you use treatment as prevention, both you have to um, measure what you do, you make a change, you are putting your efforts somewhere, and then you're going to need to regroup and readdress um, the pieces of the cascade that you missed the first time. And whatever it is, treatment as prevention will need to be complemented by PrEP, which uh, Brian's going to talk about some engagement and empowerment models, and then ultimately addressing some of the social and health inequalities which are driving a lot of the uh, ongoing epidemic. In terms of one study about care and viral suppression for women, this is another CDC study looking at 18 jurisdictions where women were about 25% of the epidemic. Uh, women overall uh, did pretty well in terms of getting linked to care, but again, in this cohort, about 44% viral suppression in the six-month range. And there was relatively little difference between racial groups and risk group differences, for example, injection drug users versus non-injection drug users um, in this study. And then finally, in New York City, um, they've really made tremendous impact in terms of getting people um, diagnosed and into care. And this shows the um, improvements that they have made in viral suppression since they initiated these efforts in 2006. So on the one hand, there's tremendous progress here that needs to be celebrated. And uh, on the other hand, we still have a lot of work to do. So to follow up on two things that Paul said, um, there were two perinatal posters I want to present briefly, and then I'll end. The uh, ANRS uh, French perinatal cohort <coughs> presented a, a group, uh, presented a poster demonstrating the fact that they have now had no perinatal transmissions in over 26 women, 2,600 women, effectively treated um, with antiretroviral therapy since conception. Getting to the point that maybe we really ought to be focusing globally, not just uh, uh, in developing countries, on having all women on antiretrovirals all the time. And this study uh, shows both the ANRS MTCT uh, implementation of combination art, it's 1997 to 2012, photo work on the graph on the right. You also see that for women who were on uh, suppressive antiretrovirals throughout their pregnancy, their transmission rate was essentially zero. And that for people who did not have uh, complete suppression, there was more evidence of uh, transmission um, in those quartiles, which makes sense. So I think it begs the question, is this you know where now that the data's there, isn't this where we need to be going? We don't just need option B plus, we need all antiretrovirals all the time. So, And it's important actually in US women also, because we still have pregnant women who come in and out of care and are not on sustained antiretroviral therapy. So.
And to speak to that point in particular, I'll share uh, an abstract that was presented by Joelle Adams on behalf of the Philadelphia Health Department. She works with um, Dr. Kathleen Brady and Dr. Florence um, Montazier, who are two uh, physicians very involved in HIV perinatal work in Philadelphia. And uh, they basically used uh, EPS, uh, EPS perinatal surveillance data and EHARS data, the other uh, CDC surveillance data, to look at linkages of postpartum women to care. And you see that of more than 700 deliveries here, that um, about 82% got care during pregnancy, 61% had viral suppression at delivery, but then in the postpartum setting, you see that uh, less than 40% were in care three months after delivery, and less than 40% were retained one year postpartum, and even a smaller percent had viral suppression in those settings. And then they were able to go on and correlate um, and compare the use of uh, those who had HIV care and engaged versus those who uh, did not remain in care and look at these other retention viral suppression outcomes over one and two years and demonstrate that there's a real opportunity to engage women in care in the immediate peripartum period and that if you don't engage them then, you're even less likely to engage them over the next several years. So this is a justification for what we're calling perinatal services coordination, and it's the focus of our uh, upcoming webinar, which is happening later this month for any of you who are interested in uh, hearing more about it. So I think I'll stop there, and we'll talk about comorbidities maybe tomorrow. So do you want to use my computer, Brian? Um, no, I'll use so for tomorrow, the, this is the um, Tuesday. It's the Tuesday um, uh, ID conference, which is eight thirty to ten. There we go. Eight thirty to ten. Um, so for those who are around who don't usually come to that, you're welcome to attend that as well. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, and does anyone know where it is tomorrow? Auditorium? It's Auditorium. Auditorium A, yeah. And so topics we'll be touching on. Uh, Tim told me he's going to be talking a little bit about innate immunity. I'm going to try to just do hep C today, so I'll talk tomorrow about PrEP, zero <coughs> uh, sorting. Mary Margaret's going to talk about metabolic, cardiovascular, bone. Um, anything else, Mary Margaret? Okay. So anyone who wouldn't normally be coming to that, you're welcome to attend. Well, neuro, neuro AIDS. What's that? Neuro AIDS. And neuro AIDS as well. Um, as ever, there's a big section on that. What there, you haven't heard any of us say we were going to talk about is um, antivirals. Really? Just every year it's less. There was only one session, I think, on, on uh, <coughs> developing antivirals. We might be talking about TAF tomorrow. So the next drug to hit the new uh, formulation of Tenofovir. All right, so as I say, I'm just going to touch on <coughs> some aspects. prep. That's not right. 
on uh, some Hep C stuff today and fly through it fairly quickly. Um, I was going to say, so, oh, and for those who are here who want um, the abstracts, you can find things online, but if you are, also want to dump all of the abstracts onto your computer, um, and all of us who went have it on a thumb drive, so just let us know if you want to borrow it to uh, take it on. So um, <clears throat> there was a fair bit on hepatitis C, so a few background slides and then a couple of slides uh, on uh, clinical trials. So first, um, how big is the issue? What is the burden of liver disease? Um, this is in people with hep C, uh, generically not hep C, HIV co-infection. But just to make the, the point that the burden of disease really is huge. So this was a CDC study where they partnered with Quest Diagnostics and got a bunch of data from Quest allowing them to calculate this thing called the FIB4 score, which is a score that um, uh, is used to um, determine stage of liver disease, and um, is, uh, I'm told, fairly well correlated with disease. I can't tell you any more about that. Um, they had a large number, were able to get data on a large number of people. So um, there were oh, 270 odd thousand uh, in this time period, or 2000 to 2013, who had a first positive hep C PCR. And of those, um, almost 200,000 were born in the years that we're currently recommended to screen for. And uh, the <coughs> bottom line is that uh, when they calculated FIB4 scores on those who they had sufficient data for, uh, the number with uh, advanced disease, severe disease, or cirrhosis, the percentage was huge. So about 50% of all individuals with hep C who were born in this uh, cohort, the screening cohort, um, had advanced liver disease, uh, meaning a, a significant risk of progression to clinical liver disease death. So I think we often think of people with advanced disease being a minority of those who we see in clinic, but in fact it's not the case. Uh, and uh, they had data on earlier than this and later than this. Later was less, but earlier it was more. A higher fraction of people had advanced liver disease. So just to make the point that of those infected with HIV, a lot of them have significant, oops, and Brian, the, the FIB score, which is a clinical grading, it correlates pretty well with biopsy? It's not a clinical grading. It's based on AST, ALT, platelets, and one other thing. <coughs> I forget which. H. But it, H. H. Yeah. So, so what I meant was it's not it's a non-invasive It's a non-invasive score that's used, right? And they, they used it because it's data that they could extract from this laboratory database. There must, there must at some point have been a comparison between the FIB score and some biopsies. Uh, people would have done that to develop the FIB4 score. I can't speak to that okay. at all. But yeah, it's a validated score. All right, so lots of disease out there. And something, uh, another um, probably fallacy that I think a lot of us have is to assume that rate of disease progression in our co-infected patients in 2015 is a lot lower, a lot less than it was in earlier years when we had less effective and more toxic therapy. 
and that therefore maybe um, the problems we were seeing 10 years ago with more, and that were documented 10 years ago, of more rapid rate of disease progression in uh, HIV uh, co-infected patients, more rapid progression of liver disease might not be the case anymore, and you know maybe they're actually acting as if they were mono-infected with hep C. Uh, this is a study that suggests that that's not the case. Again, I'm not going to go through it in detail here. Uh, but uh, just to say this was a um, uh, uh, study looking at um, uh, incidence of end-stage liver disease events in three different periods, early in the antiretroviral era, uh, mid and then more recently, and what the investigators noticed was that there's actually no difference, and you don't need to be already that. Um, main outcomes are listed up here, and that there was no difference in the rate of progression to end-stage liver disease, or in the incidence of end-stage liver disease in the contemporary antiretroviral era compared to early in the suppressive antiretroviral era um, in the uh, late 90s. So suggesting that um, rate of disease progression, risk of progression in stage liver disease is as high today as it was then, then i.e. is probably very much significantly higher than the non-co-infected uh, population. So there's a lot of it out there. It probably progresses uh, more rapidly, more frequently in our patients. And then this is a modeling study from Switzerland uh, that suggests or that concludes that risk of disease progression, if we delay treatment of liver disease progression, if we did delay treatment of the hep C, uh, <coughs> results in very significant, so longer you delay, increased risk of disease progression. So um, again, not going through this because we don't really have time, but delaying treatment for one year or to the till the patient gets F2, F3, or F4 disease led to 14, 43, 142, and 148 uh, additional cases of liver-related deaths per thousand, so a large number. So again, delaying from very early to F3 or F4, you end up getting uh, a really dramatically increased risk of progression to um, uh, end-stage liver disease and death. So, again, it's a modeling study, but um, I think makes the point again that uh, makes the point that delaying therapies actually um, might not be such a good idea, even in relatively early stage disease. So, Frank, what are the recommendations called for right now? <laughs> what recommendations? <laughs> so, um, the guidelines for treating Hep C from the ASLD and IDSA, which those are available online. Um, you know, there, people are still struggling with guidelines for who to prioritize to treat. Um, the ASLD IDSA guidelines suggest that HIV co-infection should be a priority condition for treatment, along with advanced disease. Um, every insurance company is scrambling to figure out what they feel are the guidelines for treatment and what their priority conditions are and who they will approve drugs for. Cost is definitely an issue. Cost is a huge issue, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there was a presentation I'm not showing, but um, it was a presentation on the cost of getting one person cured um, uh, with contemporary therapy and the estimated total cost for cure was about 
from say $150,000 per person, something like that. On the other end, they're cured. All right, so two clinical trials, just very quickly to mention. Um, this is one that uh, we were waiting for, an ION-4 study. So this is um, Harboni, a co-formulation of lidipasvir and sofosbuvir, 12 weeks. So this is the same study that's been done in non-co-infected patients for which we've had just a small data set. And so this now gives us a large data set looking at efficacy and safety of uh, this co-formulation. And the bottom line, looking at SBR rates, uh, and we'll, I'll talk about drugs in a second, looking at SBR rates, they're the same as we see in non-co-infected individuals. So uh, very high uh, efficacy. We're not surprised by that. You know, the, the take is that contemporary therapies, unlike older interferon-based therapies, are as affected in co-infected as in uh, mono-infected. Um, probably the more important uh, results we were looking at for our safety. Uh, there has been concern around an interaction between tenofovir and the harmony that increases tenofovir levels, serum levels, and therefore potentially increases risk of toxicity from uh, tenofovir, primarily renal. Um, the PK looked like it probably wasn't going to be that big a deal, but we didn't have the data. Um, everyone was on tenofovir. So the antiretrovirals that were allowed in the study were tenofovir FTC and either ephemerans, raltegravir, or rolpivirine. So everyone on tenofovir. And um, people tolerated it great. There were no uh, safety concerns, including around uh, uh, renal dysfunction. So, and the N I didn't, have, didn't mention is large. So uh, what's that, a total of 330. Um, so a large number. So this gives me, I was, Treating, this gives me a lot of comfort in treating uh, patients who are on a tenofovir-based regimen. Still concerns with some specific uh, other agents in the mix, in particular um, uh, around stribold, but for uh, otherwise, looks good. Was there anything, um, Ryan, on PIV, PIV, any interaction with? Yeah, uh, not in not in this study, so. Was these were the only agents that these were These were just outcomes to replicate the last, the study that was done in non-HIV patients. Right. Oops, yeah, this doesn't work for me. And then, uh, uh, briefly, probably the next kid on the block, the uh, clathosphere, another NS5A, uh, replacing the uh, liposphere, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> Placing lodipasvir, so not a co-formulation, but given with sofosbuvir. Um, so similar uh, type of study to the last, uh, looking at a uh, moderate number of patients, uh, 150-50, treated either for 12 weeks, naive and experienced, or uh, eight weeks naive in a small number. And again, uh, SVR rates 97-98% in the 12 weeks arms, 12 week arms. Uh, the argument for teclatosphere is going to be fewer drug interactions, potentially Athens will pay out price, etc. Who knows? But uh, efficacy looks good. What doesn't look good is trying to get down to eight weeks, at least in all comers. Um, whether in a subset of those.
is those with uh, low baseline viral load is not cirrhotic, um, whether the numbers will be good enough that we can do eight weeks, as we can with um, Harvoni, we'll have to wait and see. But again, it's, we're bumping up against sort of the minimum duration of therapy that's going to be uh, an option for us with um, agents that are currently in development. So again, uh, anticipating another option, and probably we're going to be driven by assurance as to what we can, um, what agents are going to be recommended, what regimens are recommended. Then the last slide I'm going to show, um, it's worth out of time. It's something I just sort of thought kind of interesting and a little surprising. Um, so viral load monitoring in patients, I don't know why it's doing that, uh, on uh, Harvoni, 